What's up, Stitches? How are you all today? I hope you are doing swell. I'm really excited about today's episode. It's an interview with queer contemporary artist, researcher, and writer Daniel Fountain, who is undertaking a fine art PhD at Loughborough University. In this episode, Daniel and I talk about the intersection of textiles and the LGBTQ community, a conversation long overdue for this podcast. Finally, like truly finally, we are here. It's an incredibly important topic, and I'm so happy I could interview Daniel about his work and research into how needlework and queerness come together. Daniel's PhD is called All That Glitters is Gold, Queering Waste Through Campy Craft, which like, what an absolutely great name. The project aims to further establish connections between craft and queerness, while also exploring how waste as abject matter might relate to queer identity, as well as how crafting from such materials might navigate the assumption of queer as waste. I'm going to read Daniel's artist statement because it's really good and my own summary would do a disservice to it, so here it is. Quote, My artistic practice utilizes methods historically associated with handicraft and exploits the marginal and gendered status of such practices in order to create works that subvert traditional notions of gender, domesticity, and sexuality. Particularly informed by the queer tactics of performativity, camp, failure, and disidentification, resulting works are often maximalist and unapologetic. They are brightly colored, excessively adorned, and inherently kitsch. More recently, I have been concerned with the ways in which queer lives are often considered the abject other of heteronormative society. Through a camp recycling practice that embraces the possibilities of working with marginalized objects and outmoded decorative styles, I seek to recuperate the deprecated into a source of queer identity and strength, end quote. Heck yeah. One of the many things I love about Daniel's work is how integral needlework is in terms of literal stitching and in the language associated with it. You'll get what I mean more when Daniel talks about it in a few minutes. That's just to say Daniel is a great guest to have on So What to talk about queer needlework. As always, check the So What social media to see images of Daniel's art and the other objects we talk about in the episode. Enjoy the interview. Hello, hi. How did you get interested in queer craft, trash, and textiles? My interest in queer craft uh, really started with collage, I guess. Uh, <laughs> for my undergraduate degree show, I made this huge um, life-size collage, which was called Even Adam. Um, and the, the kind of I, I became really fascinated with the process of collage because of the ways in which it, it allowed me to kind of rip and tear and cut. Um, stereotypical representations of gender and sexuality that I was finding in print media um, and then completely reconstruct them in like a really queer worldview through kind of the use of glue and stitch so I was using a lot of stitching as well as gluing Um, so that's where the kind of needlework element started to come into it was the the stitching with the collage and those two kind of things coalescing um, and then a few years ago, I, I really began to start collecting found textiles. And I guess it's that kind of thing where if you say to somebody, don't think of a pink elephant, you just think of a pink elephant. And so everywhere I went, I began to notice like these textiles, which were really like out of place and like, I don't know, weird T-shirts in bushes and, and things like that. And, and just collecting scraps of fabric and materials. And I really became fascinated by their qualities or I guess you could say sort of material afterlives um, and things like the holes and the rips and the stains and the smells and, and the textures that really kind of signified their past lives that they had 
before I kind of went and picked them up off the street or kind of collected them in the studio. So those kind of things started to really coalesce together and the, these kind of things about trash and, and craft and textiles all sort of kind of bundled together and became one. I kind of as a queer person I really find similarities between trash as kind of this objected and discarded and, and unloved matter and my own experiences of kind of feeling refused in society at times um, so I kind of started to really find affinities with these objects which I was collecting and, and that's kind of how it all kind of coalesced together. Thank you. What came first your artistic practice or your research about textiles and the stuff that comes with it. I'm assuming it's the artistic practice. It was definitely the artistic practice. So so I'm first and foremost an artist and a maker, really. Um, and uh, well, my PhD research is practice-led. So obviously the, the practice and the artistic practice is a key part of it. But I think my practice has always been revolved around research in a way. I, you know, I've always been informed by feminism and queer theory. Um, way back when I was studying, I, my undergraduate degree was fine art and English literature. So those kind of things really did inform each other. So I was studying modules mainly of critical theory. And so the feminism and queer theory that I was learning within the English side of the course really transferred through to the fine art side of the course. Um, so my practice has always been kind of research orientated, but I guess more recently that's kind of played a more important part of researching specific needlework techniques and kind of what those associations are and, and all of those things, really. So I think, yeah, the artistic practice first. So speaking about your artistic practice, can you tell me more about it? What kind of, I mean, I've gone to your website a billion times at this point. So like I'm familiar <laughs> with kind of what art you make, but I'd love to know more about your process and what you think about and what role needlework plays in your art making. Yeah, so I, this is something that I've kind of been really reflecting on recently as part of the PhD as well. Um, and I've I've come to the conclusion that I, I employ needlework technique. A running theme seems to be that I employ it as a form of like um, like a reparative device. So so for me, it's, it's the, the bit that does the repairing. It's the bit that does the piecing together. And it's the bit that does the patchwork. Um, so I kind of see that as reflective of a kind of community building of kind of drawing these disparate elements together and, and binding them together as one whole. So, yeah, that's that's how I kind of I, I kind of look at the process of needlework. Um, but more recently, I've kind of like we were just talking about the, the research and the practice informing one another. I've been researching specific types of needlework. So I was exploring the etymology of the term faggot, which is obviously a derogatory term that's been held at me throughout my lifetime and, and many other people as well, LGBTQ plus people. Um, but I found that faggoting is actually a method of needlework. And I just found it so obscure that there was this method of needlework called faggoting. And it was just like, wh where did this come from? So I was researching yeah. that. And was like, where on earth did this come from? How do the terms intersect? Um, so I basically found out that it was um, often used on women's clothing throughout the 1920s in Britain and America. So it's that kind of um, open work seam that you see. It's usually like a zigzag pattern or straight lines. Um, so I was kind of using that in my practice and exploring those slippages in terms which were really interesting as a form of reclamation and reappropriation of that term. Um, but in in a quite a subtle way, I think, like unless you knew that, unless you knew that 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 method of needlework that I was using was called faggoting, I don't think you would really understand that the, the work was about sexual politics. But um, I really kind of delight in those slippages of terms. Um, 
Yeah, there's there's all sorts as well. I think more recently, I haven't done anything with it yet, but I've come across GIMP, uh, which I think we talked about briefly. GIMP um, yarn and mm. then crocheted GIMP um, as well. So I think that's another project which is, yeah, on the backbone at the minute, but on the backbone, but. I love that. I mean, you could see from my face that I did not know about that. <laughs> First of all, where have I been? How embarrassing for me. Second of all, that's crazy. So have you found that there is a connection between the stitch and the derogatory use of the word? Well, let me try and uh, do this in a very succinct way. Uh, so the term basically originated in process of a bundling. Mm, okay. So uh, a, a faggot bundle was like a bundle of sticks or twigs which were bound together. That conjured associations with textile making and yeah. things that were being bound. Um, so they were then used for kind of, well, for fuel, really, and to burn fires, um, but also to burn heretics alive. Sometimes when that sentence wasn't carried out, then the individual would have to kind of carry a faggot on their shoulder um, and then nobody knew this. I contacted loads of textile historians and I was like, I found this thing. Is it a thing? And they were like, I don't think that that's a thing. I've never heard of that. But I found loads of research. I think it was in 1528, I found some written documentation that said when when the order wasn't issued that he was to be, that this chap called John Higg was, was to be, he wasn't to be burnt, but he was to carry a symbol of a faggot on his shoulder and then for the rest of his life, he needed to wear an embroidered patch of a faggot on all of his clothing, like for the rest of time. And he said, I can't do that. I can't do that. Um, it's shameful. It's sinful. It won't, uh, I won't get any work. Nobody will speak to me. And they were kind of like, well, that's your punishment for being a heretic and not following our religion. So it's always had roots in needlework. It's just never been explored by anybody before. And uh, some people have also made associations with the most common form of faggoting is kind of like a zigzag. Mm -hmm. uh, and sometimes it, it's drawn together with like a thin stitch. Um, it, you can kind of group the threads together. So okay. so some of the some of the faggoting needlework stitches do look like little bundles of sticks. But it's a very kind of loose association. It's not one that's really been explored. It's just more of a visual kind of similarity between the two. But yeah, there's all these interesting slippages in the terms and, and rooted in needlework and uh, abjection and shame. And yeah, it's all these really fascinating things that have kind of been unraveling throughout yeah, the practice research. And so you have mentioned several times already in this glorious episode, the importance of crafting and of needlework to your practice as a queer person and how it reflects how stitching reflects oftentimes your experience. I was wondering if you could give me more of your thoughts on the importance of craft and crafting and art making to LGBT plus people. I, I think craft uh, craft and LGBTQ plus identities are, are really interlinked, but I, I sometimes use the, the, the term crafting. So, so mm -hmm. this process of crafting something, which I really think is really similar to the ways in which um, we kind of craft our own kinship structures and alternative families, for example, um, and, and kind of the ways in which we have to do that from scratch, really, and, and kind of build our own worlds and cultural identification points and, and these kinds of things. So I use the term crafting in that way to symbolise that, that broader range. Um, but on a physical level, I mean, 
Needlework plays a really key role within that too, particularly for kind of transgender, non-binary, genderqueer people. For instance, it, I think about fantastic projects like the Museum of Transology. So they collect objects from trans, non-binary and intersex people. And so people submit things to the collection. It's an ongoing collection. It's not like a static museum mm -hmm. site. Um, and people often kind of write a little brown, a brown label, like a luggage tag. Um, to kind of tell tell people about their story and about their kind of um, about why the object is relevant to their lives, and it's it's really surprising to see that most of the objects within that collection are textiles, right? Because right. they're things that have been altered and, and used craftily, to use another phrase. Mm -hmm. um, so there's breast binders, so so pieces of textile which go across the chest to flatten uh, your breasts to give you know the more appearance of a more masculine um, chest. And there's binders that have been kind of cut up and and reused um, to make them more comfortable for the wearer. Um, there's socks which have been used for kind of packing, so right. put, exactly. basically putting down your trousers to make give the appearance of a bulge. Um, and obviously there's loads of items of clothing as well. So dresses, trousers, pants um, that really have allowed people to explore their gender identities and be themselves. And, and that's really through the role of textiles as well. It plays a key role in that. And then recently they've been really reflecting on um, kind of representation within the collection and making sure that uh, black queer voices uh, are heard as well within the collection. So I think they've been doing lots of collecting of um, objects basically that have arisen from the Black Lives Matter protests um, and really kind of making sure that their collection is representative of, truly representative of the community that's out there. Wow, I truly, truly, my God, love to see it. So a hugely important piece of needlework I haven't talked about yet on this podcast, which is such a shame and I don't know where I have been, is the AIDS quilt. And I know that you and I have talked about it, and I know that you're really interested in it and know a lot about it. So I'd love to hear more about your research on it and what it was like to see the panels, some of the panels in person. The project was really uh, initiated in 1985 by the activist Cleve Jones. Uh, and Cla uh, Cleve uh, basically helped to organize a candlelit vigil in the Castro district of San Francisco. And it was primarily to mourn the murder of Harvey Milk, who was obviously the first openly gay official, I think, in California. Um, but because of the increasing numbers of gay men um, and, and people who were dying of AIDS in the district, um, the vigil kind of, Joan said that it felt especially meaningful for him. So him and his friend Joseph Durrant, I think that's how you pronounce his surname, handed out uh, placard boards, um, basically just plain plain boards and marker pens so that attendees could uh, write the names of friends and family or, or lovers who had died from AIDS-related illnesses and kind of hold them up um, to, to kind of show real the, the real impact that um, AIDS was having on this community. Uh, but rather than discarding the placards after the vigil, the vigil had ended, demonstrators began to place their boards on the walls of the San Francisco Federal Building. So at the time that housed, uh, I think, the West Coast offices of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, I think, um, as a symbol of, of resistance. So it was really kind of became a protest in a sense. And, and he recalls that he, he kind of thought that these looked like a patchwork of names uh, and they looked like a quilt. And obviously, the kind of these notions of a quilt, so something warm, something comforting, um, were so far removed from how 
HIV and AIDS was being treated by the government at the time. Um, so he kind of really played on that aspect and, and developed it into the, the, the quilt as we know it today. And I think the last time I checked, the project said that they've got almost 50,000 individual memorials. Um, so to this day, it's the largest community art project in the world. So it's just huge. Um, that is amazing. It's just, yeah, it's saddening to think how many people are, are, are memorialized through the project. But yeah, 50,000 individual names. Um, so, well, a bit about seeing the panels in person. So I was awarded funding to kind of go out to New York and, and undertake a lot of archival research based on the quilt. And whilst I was there, it just happened that my stay coincided with a display of some of the blocks uh, at the Lincoln Center. Mm -hmm. And so I, I got there and then they were just nowhere to be seen. I was like, where are where are the sections of the AIDS quilt? And nobody really knew where they were. And it turned out that they were basically just there for an evening. And then they'd been kind of packed up and were ready to ship back to the foundation. Um, but the person that I spoke to was really, really helpful. And she put me in touch with um, one of the archival assistants at the, at the Lincoln Center and basically arranged an appointment to go up to the office to go and see them. And it was there when it really hit me like how big these panels were. Mm. So, so each individual panel is three foot by six foot. And the idea of that is that's because that's the average size of a human grave. Mm. Um, oh. So, and then eight of those panels are then sewn together to form like a 12 by 12 foot, what they call, they call it a block. So the idea was that each individual life, um, each individual panel was not seen uh, individually, that they were always kind of enmeshed in this, this community. So again, the, the kind of use of needlework here formed a reparative device and kind of literally brought people together through, through the use of stitch. Um, so, so we got one panel out and in this tiny office, it just took over the whole office. I mean, it took four of us to unfold the the, the section of the quilt and it didn't even fit on the large conference table so we, we had to move furniture out of the way and we had to lay it down on the floor gently so that I could photograph it I mean it was just huge um, and then it really hit me you know if there's 50,000 of these like it's just the scale of it is is yeah it was really hard hitting and just to see the amount of objects that were kind of sewn onto the quilt and most of them are just everyday objects um, so teddy bears or costume jewellery, um, clothing, ties, t-shirts and so on and, and it's just really really was moving to see that and, and I knew it was going to be an emotional experience but I just wasn't prepared for kind of yeah the wealth of emotions that that kind of yeah it's, it's just a fantastic project and, and it's an ongoing project as well people think it's just you know this thing that happened in the 80s and, and it's over and done with it's not um, it's an ongoing thing just as AIDS is ongoing, is, mm -hmm. is ongoing. Um, so people still regularly submit panels and it's just, it, it continues to grow. Do you know who stitches the blocks together? Yeah, so I mean, the, how it started was they would run kind of community sewing workshops. And this is a really interesting element, which I haven't really talked about in my research. Mm. But it was really this sense of community, you know, it was a community problem and it was a reaction against kind of the ways in which the government and the politics and you know the medical institutions and their failure to really respond to this crisis that brought the people brought people together and so the foundation ran a lot of stitching workshops and just invited anybody to come in 
and they would teach them how to sew. And there's just brilliant photos in some of the archives that I went to of, um, you know, the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. Mm -hmm. They ran like workshops there. So there's this photo, these photos of these wonderful kind of people in drag costumes and makeup and things, um, sewing and just people coming together. But but one of the main people who's done most of the sewing is a woman called Gert McMullen. Mm-hmm. And she has recently been using leftover uh, fabric, or which fabric that they've got in their stores, to basically um, sew PPE for healthcare workers. Because she said, you know, during the AIDS crisis, she was seeing, you know, people that didn't have PPE and there wasn't enough masks and there wasn't enough, you know, equipment to go around. And she's, I think she uses the phrase, she says, I didn't think I would be able to sew for two pandemics. And I have. That is amazing. I love her. Wow. And thank you. Moving more small scale. What is your favorite piece of your own work? Is that something that you can choose? Do you love all your children equally? (laughs) I I don't know. I I think most artists find it really difficult to praise their own work. Mm. And, And I do as well. I think because we're so critical and you just spend all of these hours sitting and sewing that by the end of it, you're just like, was this really worth it? I've literally just spent four weeks (laughs) sewing Mm -hmm. and I'm not sure but um well I think the the probably I think my favorite piece is probably the faggoting piece which I mentioned earlier and I think it's just because it's very playful it's deeply connected to the history of needlework uh and I, I kind of really like the ambiguity about it the fact that it's it's kind of it just looks like a piece of artwork and you wouldn't really necessarily know that it's about sexual politics or it's about queerness um, until you read the title or the description or, or you know what faggoting is or obviously the use of the term faggot um, and that was recently shortlisted uh, made it through to the final shortlist of the Vlieseline Fine Art Textile Award so I was like maybe I'm maybe I'm doing something right if the festival yeah. is built to like oh this is quite cool then I then then it, I must be on the right track somewhere I think oh, so I'd probably say that piece. thank you Thinking about favorite objects still, do you have a favorite needleworked object that you didn't make? This could be anything. This is such a hard question. I know. <laughs> I am so sorry. I was even <laughs> listening to like some of the previous uh, podcasts, uh, the, some of the other issues of the podcast, and I was like, what's everyone else chosen? And I was just like... Yeah, oh. no, it's a terrible question, but so, for me, it's fun. <laughs> yeah, for you, it's fun. Uh, <laughs> Well, I think I've mentioned loads already, like the AIDS quill and some of the objects within the Museum of Transology. I think they're just so poignant and just will really stick with me forever. But I kind of, aside from those things, I mean, I blame I, well, I blame you for this. I blame your Twitter feed. I kind of have a new obsession with 17th century gloves. Obsessed, right? They're so Literally wild. obsessed with them. And I think it's just, I, yeah, I blame you anyway with this new random obsession. Thank um, you. I just, I really love like how excessive and campy they are. Like, you know, lacy and frilly and the kind of floral decor and the fact that they were even like perfumed and, you know, yep. obviously have moisturizer in them and, and how even for men, like men would wear them as well and how the whole thing was a language. Like, I didn't know this until the other day about kind of throwing down your gauntlet of being mm-hmm. related to the 17th century gloves. Um, and before COVID, uh, before the Rona happened, I was collecting loads of found gloves. I was just really drawn to the fact that they were always, like, dropped in singular quantities. Yeah. 
and just like alone, but they kind of look like they've been crawling along like overnight or something, you know, like these weird Toy Story objects and how bodily they were and the fact that they retain their shape as hands, but they're obviously textiles. Um, so I, anyway, I became obsessed with these, but obviously since COVID has happened, they've become, you know, more relevant now than ever. And I'm obviously now not collecting objects like I was before <laughs> picking gloves up off the street would now be a very terrible idea. Yeah. Um, but they've obviously now got particular associations. So I think, yeah, it's just gloves. I'm obsessed with gloves at the moment. Here is the big question that I always ask people, mostly because I love hearing their responses, especially in these continually strange times. And the question is, what do you think the role of needlework is in today's world? Yeah, this is such a tough question as well. Sorry. Um, <laughs> well, I think like, like you've just said it, like right now with COVID-19, we're obviously seeing like a massive revival of handicraft techniques, right? There's so much like cottagecore stuff going on and sewing for masks and sewing for healthcare professionals and just sewing as a pastime as well. Like so many people have just been involved with it. Um, and I think it sounds super cheesy, but I've always been drawn to to needlework and threads for their like metaphors and associations, like the idea that we can weave something or bind something together and to make like a stronger braid or a stronger strand, uh, you know, like this idea that as individuals, you know, we are individual, but as a community, we are stronger together. And I think those ideas around mending and repair and coming together and uniting things is is just more relevant than ever, I think, in such a tumultuous time. I don't even know if that's really an answer, but I would say that, yeah, I would say that's that. That's a really good answer. Yeah, no, that's really good and so real. And I wonder, what I keep thinking about is, like, are we going to have, once things return to normal, will we continue to be kind of, like, really interested in the cottage core, like, embroidering and stitching and sewing? And will we kind of have a return to quilting bees and, like, stitch and bitch sessions? But I think like they never went away. But will those things kind of return to the mainstream where people continue to stitch and to mend and to alter and whatever? But do they want to do it in a social setting? Mm. It, it will be really interesting to see. I mean, I hope they do. But I, I think know. one of the most exciting things for me is just seeing so many young people and, and people from loads of different backgrounds engaging with needlework, which I've never really seen before. Yeah, there's so many great, you know, feminist stitch and bitch collectives that I've seen, so many queer crafting collectives. Um, yeah, there's just so, such a great sense of community, which I hope really does stay. I mean, I don't think there will ever, I don't, yeah, I don't think there will ever, ever be like a return to normal. I mean, what what's normal? But um, I think whatever comes out of this, yeah, I really hope that, that kind of those interests in needlework really does continue. Me too. Huh, me too. Because it's so, <laughs> isn't it so nice? It's really nice to see. And you don't feel so much like an outsider anymore. You don't feel like, you know, like the weirdo at the back of the classroom. But I mean, I'm fine with being the weirdo at the back of the classroom. I've Same. always been the weirdo at the back of the classroom. Ooh. But it's so nice to actually see other people engaging with some of the stuff that you yep. are engaging with. And I feel like you can now talk to a lot of people about it. Whereas before they would just look at you blankly and be like, I have no idea what you're talking about right now. Can't believe you're reading my mind straight up saying. So the last question is, how can people learn more about your work? And do you have anything you'd like to promote? Tell me everything. 
Uh, so I, ha I have a website, which I try to keep updated regularly. It, I mean, it's due an update, but I, I do keep it updated. And so that's uh, www.danielfountain.com. And fountain is spelled like a water fountain. Um, and that's kind of got all of my artwork on it, as well as details of my exhibitions, forthcoming publications, uh, inside leg measurement and stuff. Basically everything. It doesn't literally have my inside leg measurement, but there we go. Um, and people can follow me on Twitter, which is at Daniel underscore Fountain, or I'm also on Instagram, which is Daniel Fountain Art. Um, and then I just say that I'm always open to kind of commissions, collaborations, and, and talking about these kinds of things with anybody. And it's been a delight to actually speak to you about stuff today. So if anybody wants to, you know, talk further, then they can get in touch via my website and we can go from there. <gasps> Awesome. Oh my God. Yes. Thank you. Thank you no so problem. much for doing this. It's been a pleasure and an honor. Oh my it's God. It's also been a pleasure and an honor for me. Go team. Oh, love this. Thank you. What a good interview, right? I feel so lucky I got to talk with Daniel. I'm really glad we finally got to the AIDS quilt on the pod because it's been a really long time coming and it really, really needed to be discussed. I think it's one of the most important pieces of needlework to ever be made. And it is literally the biggest piece of folk art in the world, I think, which is amazing and so rad. I'm also really glad Daniel brought up the Museum of Transology, the largest display of trans artifacts and portraits ever on display in the UK. I'm posting a few different links about and related to the Museum of Transology on the So What social media, as well as links to Daniel's website. Yay, resources! We love resources! Thank you for listening to this episode of So What and for getting into queer needlework with us. What a treat it has been. Now go out and stitch some stories and go check out the AIDS quilt and the Museum of Transology. Bye!